This is Guns and Butter. And I think uh, on the whole, one can uh, imagine that in the future, there will be a tilt towards radicalism. And uh, I don't know how this is going to be handled. Uh, it could be handled democratically. But can now democracy be put in place very quickly so that it can bring in everything and in, uh, create inclusive governments rather than exclusive governments? That's a very big challenge. And only the time will tell whether we are able to control this situation or not. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, General Hamid Ghul. Today's show, the new turning point in the Middle East, Central and South Asia. General Ghul had a brilliant 36-year military career in the Pakistan Army. At the height of his military career, it was expected that he would be promoted to the position of Chief of the Army Staff. But due to political pressures from abroad, he was not selected, and as a result, he resigned from the Army and is now retired. The highest attainment of his long and distinguished career was his command of Inter-Services Intelligence, ISI, from 1987 to 1989, during the fateful period of Afghan Jihad against the Soviet occupation of that country. General Ghul faced down riot police when they tried to arrest him at a rally outside the Supreme Court in Islamabad, protesting against attempts to dismiss the Chief Justice. He has written hundreds of columns, mostly for Urdu Press of Pakistan, but also for the English readership within Pakistan and abroad. General Hamid Ghul, welcome again. Thank you very much, Bonnie. Does the uh, unfolding situation in North Africa and the Middle East have any implications for Pakistan? The unspeakable material conditions under which people live are certainly similar. Uh, They're all under the boot of dictatorships maintained by the U.S. and the EU. Uh, They are all Islamic. What is your view of what is now afoot in the Middle East and Central Asia? Well, uh, I think it's a reaction to years and years and decades of repression uh, and courtesy the European powers and America. They wanted their own interests to be promoted here. I don't know what, what kind of interests are these. These have not been, not been defined by the American people, to the American people. They have not been defined by the policymakers. If uh, support, unfair, unjust support to Israel is the primary interest of America, then surely it is against the interest of American people over a long run. That is the situation now. In the name of democracies, Hosni Omarik, for instance, is now facing the brunt of the public wrath, and, but he is responsible for it, and partially America is responsible for not letting the real democracy be ushered in to that region. And similarly, as far as Tunis is concerned, there are two issues which are important. One is the empowerment of people is not taking place. And the second is that it is forced secularization, which is creating problems. These two issues are the uppermost in creating this unrest. Secularization, uh, unnecessarily in Islamic world, they do not want to be secularized. And so there is a reaction and response to that. 
And uh, secondly, the uh, in the name of democracy, what has been going on has been uh, totally unacceptable to the people. They have suffered at the hands of corrupt rulers because when power is concentrated in one hand, then power tends to corrupt itself, and it uh, an absolute power is, is said this corrupts itself absolutely. So that's the situation that we are facing today. Well, of course, behind Mubarak and other heads of state in the Middle East is, of course, the U.S. and Wall Street. How do you assess the role of the IMF, uh, the World Bank, and other global financial institutions in the poverty and upheaval now taking place in Egypt? This uh, understandable, I think, uh, because I, either there has been an attempt by the American policymakers to keep the people poor deliberately. I don't know what uh, good would serve, but uh, I think the, if you unleash the IMF on somebody and the World Bank, we have seen that not a single economic model is successful by their recipes. They come charging money. They are so greedy, so selfish. Do you know that the World Bank consultants charge $10,000 from countries like Pakistan for per hour of consultation? $10,000 for any staffer from the World Bank will come and charge $10,000 per, per hour of consultation. Now, this is too much. The money that you give, more than half of it you take away. You funnel it back to your own coffers. And uh, people become poorer and poorer, and people are sick and fed up of the IMF. And I think a stage will come, then these, uh, they, will, they would default on the loan repayments, and that will be quite another situation, even for the Western economies. Now, uh, staying with the subject of Egypt for the moment, uh, what about the Egyptian military? Um, aren't the officer corps entrepreneurs along with the Egyptian elites? Yes, they are elite also, but a concentrated public power, public anger cannot be countenanced by any military force. I can assure you this, and I can quote you the example of Foshen Shah of Iran way back in 1979, uh, when the people started marching on the streets in huge numbers, in great masses. Then the military just disappeared. I, I think they were the most loyalist people uh, that uh, Shah could develop, or any ruler could develop. But the, then when the time came, the crunch came, then the people, the generals and others, they fell like nine pins, and they just disappeared and dissolved into thin air. The reason might, uh, this is because I'm a soldier, so I can tell you this reason, because generals, after all, the privileged classes, even in the armed forces, are very few in numbers. The unprivileged classes are the foot soldiers, and when the foot soldiers' sentiments change, then the generals can do nothing about it, because after all, those are the tools which they can use to perpetuate their power or to uh, evince their loyalty to the crown in that case and to the dictators in case of Hosni Mubarak, etc. So really it is the institution which starts developing cavities within itself. And that is the problem that one saw in, uh, in, in Iran, and that is the situation that one is now witnessing both in Tunis and in uh, Egypt. But let me hark back to Pakistan. Back in 1977, when Mr. Bito had become very coercive, and he wanted to use the army to uh, 
crushed the agitation that was going on against him. I remember I was a lieutenant colonel, quite a senior rank at that time, uh, and uh, the army was ordered to fire uh, by a magisterial order, by the way, in Lahore, and they fired 556 rounds on a particular day, and there were less than five casualties, and they, those were not dead. They were only slightly injured people. That means the army, jawans, the soldiers, and the foot soldiers, they refused to fire. That means they fired in the air, whereas the orders of the army in such a case are shoot to kill. So that day we knew, at least I knew, that it was all over for Mr. Bhutto. So really, uh, the institution are extensions of the society, military institutions are extension of the society itself. And the woes of the society, the pain and the anger and the pent-up feelings are quite identical to the um, feelings in the society. It's only a moment, of defining moment, or a tilt point, which when it arrives, then one really knows which way they, their loyalties would swing. And also with regard to Egypt, what do you think of the prisoners being freed? And, and some say by the Mubarak government and the police. Do you find this credible? I don't know, because not enough information is coming out. But it is possible that Husni Mubarak himself is letting out the criminals to discredit this movement, which is for restoration of democracy, empowerment of people, but he would want to project it as uh, being led by criminals. So it always is a possibility. I don't rule that out. But on the whole, I think the army and uh, and the police, their loyalties have changed against Hussein Mubarak, against the establishment, and I think that is what is important. What can you tell us about the Muslim Brotherhood? Muslim Brotherhood is not as well organized as it used to be. But it has uh, definitely, it, it will start receiving support from the adjoining countries where they are better off. Like, in, for instance, in Jordan, they are quite strong. And in uh, some of the other countries, Muslim Brotherhood is quite strong. And I think the whole situation is going to have an impact on Sudan as well. Because in Sudan, a lot of people are very angry about this referendum which was held recently and the result of which are still to come. Uh, I think it's not until July that uh, if division of the country to take place, that it will occur. So it is going to have a very deep impact on, on the entire region. And Muslim Brotherhood is the only organization which is uh, religious, political, and they have had connection. But let me tell you that Muslim Brotherhood, gives inspiration. At one time it gave a lot of inspiration to the people like Osama bin Laden and other, because they are driven by the thoughts of Hassan al-Banna and Sayyid Qutb Shaheed and all the others uh, who were radical uh, Muslim uh, scholars and, and leaders. And I think uh, on the whole, one can uh, imagine that in the future, there will be a tilt towards radicalism and uh, I don't know how this is going to be handled. Uh, it could be handled democratically, but can now democracy be put in place very quickly so that it can bring in everything and in, uh, create inclusive governments rather than exclusive government? That's a very big challenge, and only the time will tell whether we are able to control this situation or not. Now, did I understand you uh, when you mentioned the problems in Sudan? 
Uh, were you saying that this recent referendum to divide the Sudan in half, did you say that that was very unpopular? It's unpopular in the north, yes. It's unpopular in the north in the Muslim communities. And obviously the uh, turmoil in Egypt is going to have a profound effect on them because they will get encouraged and they may go for uh, Sudan's government. Even, uh, I think, Omar Hassan al-Bashir, he, he will also have to face a new challenge now. It's not just the challenge of the division of the country to which he has agreed, but uh, he might face a, a, a more uh, uh, daunting political challenge. And I think people like uh, Dr. Hassan Torabi, etc., uh, will be now will become more popular, and they they would appear like from the hindsight that they were right, and Hassan Bashir was wrong. Now, with regard to Egypt, what do you think of El Baradai showing up and sort of trying to? Uh, what do you think of him? Al Baradai made a name for himself. He uh, shared the uh, Nobel Prize, and uh, I think, uh, but. Some people are suspecting that Al Baradai is a front man for the Western interest, that he's been put up there because, after all, he's been a darling of the West for a very long time. But I know Al Baradai was not liked by the Americans, but other European countries, etc., they, they were doting over Al Baradai. So there is an element of doubt about him, Al Baradai. But, and he's also an old man. I think eventually, end of the day, some younger man will emerge from the crowds, and he will be the one who will lead this movement. Now, when we first spoke about uh, the revolution going on in uh, North Africa, you talked about two things that had been suppressed, the empowerment of people and forced secularization. Now, when you say that secularization has been forced... Are you then saying that if the majority of people had their way, uh, they would have an Islamic republic? Yes, indeed. They will have an Islamic republic, and that would be good also. I tell you, there is unnecessary phobia about Islamic republic. The problems of a Muslim society can be resolved not by less Islam, but by more Islam, going to the fundamental going to the holy book itself and to the life of Prophet of Islam, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Now, these are so good because if you weigh them up on the scale of human values, the best of the values, the most exalted values, they will come out with flying colors. So why be shy of it? Why, why just have to develop a phobia about it? For instance, the Sharia laws, if they are correctly applied to the society, I think they will bring in equality, fraternity, and freedom. The same ideals that were espoused by the French Revolution, the same ideals which are espoused by the American Constitution, and by the Western democracies in general. So I don't think there is a, a great deal of uh, uh, gulf between the two systems. Only thing is that uh, this, when you uh, go by halves, then you create problems then contradictions emerge, and those contradictions are the killers. I'm speaking with former head of Pakistani Inter-Services Intelligence, General Hamid Ghul. Today's show, the new turning point in the Middle East, Central, and South Asia. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, now, what do you think about the situation in Iran, speaking of an Islamic republic? Now, that's pretty unpopular, isn't it, with the people of Iran? 
not uh, exactly. I think people of Iran are divided on that, and those are all revolutionaries, even those who are called as reformers, uh, like uh, Khatami and uh, Hashmi Rafsanjani, and uh, now lately the Hussein Musvi types. They are also revolutionaries. They are about to support the ideals of uh, Khamenei, but they are opposed to the harsh ways of uh, Ahmadinejad. And, of course, on top of them all is the Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. So, uh, but for the moment, I think Iran has been able to stabilize the political situation. And these new revolutions are going to give greater strength to Iran. They're not going to take away the, 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 the spirit of the revolution, but they are going to actually fortify the spirit of the revolution in Iran. Right. And now with, uh, with what's happened in Tunisia and in Egypt, uh, do you see revolution then spreading throughout the entire area? Uh, over a period of time, I don't think immediately it will have effect because people will be quite dazzled because this has come all of a sudden. Americans have still not withdrawn from Afghanistan, um, but when the Americans start pulling out and their power weakens in the area, their influence weakens, then I think gradually, slowly, the people will start rising out of their slumber, out of their uh, helplessness, and uh, they would start asserting themselves. And that will happen in every country, and it will happen in Central Asian countries, where there are similar coercive regimes being installed under the leadership of the old communist diehard. They are all the rulers of the Central Asian republics, which are mighty rich in natural resources, but their population has been suppressed because of the past, past history of oppression and suppression. So I think uh, they will be also affected. I don't think they will remain untouched because of the happening in, in the Middle East. Well, now, uh, since you brought up Afghanistan, do you really think that the United States has any intention of withdrawing? Uh, they have no choice. They would, may, may not want to wish to withdraw. And as a professional soldier, I can give the judgment on this. The sooner they withdraw, the better, because otherwise they will get involved into a running fight, and that would be disastrous. Any any soldier worth his salt will tell you that uh, these uh, running fights are they're terrible, because on the scales of time, space, and relative strength, Americans have only firepower in their control. That means out of the three elements which determine the outcome of the war, Americans only have one half of it, one half. And that means two and a half factors go against the Americans. In such a situation, it will be best for them to cut clean and get out of Afghanistan and not try to force imaginary uh, solutions on Afghanistan. People of Afghanistan who have always been very independent or rather ferociously independent and they uh, have defended their uh, freedom and they have defended their faith, so leave it to them. They are quite capable. I know them very intimately, and I know that given the psychological space, they are able to resolve their own problems quite amicably. America should scale down their objectives, 
that uh, a there should be no aggression committed against any country from the Afghan soil very legitimate demand second is that they should form an inclusive government not exclusive like the old taliban government that is a legitimate demand third is that uh, the world community should remain engaged in reconstruction of afghanistan which is also very good for the afghans as well as for the world community because over a period of time that uh, afghan society will start evolving into a modern society fine this is also a good demand but occupation and development do not go together and that lesson must be driven home to the policy makers well now when you say that ideally afghanistan should have an inclusive government who would that all include well it will include taliban first of all because they are victorious and they are the ones who will decide only thing is that they should be uh, cajoled they should be convinced and they should even conditions should be put on them no okay you will have an inclusive government but basically the initiative has to be taken not by the likes of karzais and rabanis it has to be by the uh, taliban themselves and led by mullah umar because he is the symbol of resistance and i think of one nation now more than 80% of them they look to him for any solution in the future and then also if you're going to have an inclusive government i guess you're also including the northern alliance well everybody is included because afghan millat or as it is called the afghan nation does not comprise only of pashtuns and tajiks that was the mistake that was made in setting up this northern alliance government because it was to the exclusion exclusion of uh, uh, the, the the largest uh, ethnic group that was pashtun and the taliban of course who were resisting they were termed as terrorists they were labeled as terrorists they are not terrorists please for heaven's sake they haven't indulged in any act of terrorism outside their own territory where they are fighting for for their freedom and independence and that is their right because this has been granted to them under the uh, united nation resolution so uh, i don't know why the things are not being taken in the correct light so engage taliban because without them you can't get those guarantees that i have just listed for you So what are all the different groups in Afghanistan there's Taliban there's Northern Alliance what else No there is the Northern Alliance there is Hikmatyar these are the only two groups as far as Haqqani is concerned he is very much under the command of Mullah Umar because he has taken an oath of allegiance on the hand of Mullah Umar that means Mullah Umar is his leader So Haqqani is not a separate group but Hikmatyar is definitely politically separate group but all his fighters fight under the banner of Mullah Omar I see and is Mullah Omar still in Afghanistan Yes he is very much there he is very much there otherwise he would not be so successful if the word went out that he is cooling his heels somewhere else in another country the the people of Taliban will not fight so tenaciously as they are doing right now What do you think of General David Petraeus's leadership in Afghanistan awful awful i think he is a politician because he got a measure of success partial success i would say you know, in iraq where he used the tribesmen to suppress the influence of al qaeda that was a partial success and he is trying the same formula in afghanistan now and then what he when he says that he has uh, 
been able to control the situation around Kandahar, that is, and in Kandahar itself. Only yesterday, I think the deputy, deputy governor of Kandahar was killed. And this, he is lying through his teeth. I'm very sorry to say that, but I think one has to be straight when one is talking about soldiers. And I think he has absolutely no idea how war is going on in Afghanistan. I personally think he has his eye on the presidential office in the next election, and he wants to make a political impact rather than a military impact. And it is not possible, because I think the ground realities are totally different to what he has been trying to project. And then are Taliban paid protection money to allow safe passage uh, of NATO supply lines? Yes, they charge uh, just at the entrance, they charge $2,000, and then beyond to uh, forward bases and to other places, they charge from the security contractors also. Actually, it has been outsourced. The security in Afghanistan has been outsourced. What a horrible thing for the, the strongest military machine ever witnessed by the history, that is NATO, is actually outsourcing its security to somebody else. And intelligence gathering has been outsourced by the CIA and by the European intelligence to private contractors like David Furlong and many other names have come into it. So I think uh, the American uh, taxpayer dollars are being squandered like never before. And as if uh, they, are, they are being grown on, uh, on the trees like leaves, and you're just plucking them and distributing them to whoever you like. Now, this is a horrible situation, really. It is what a one war has done to the American morality, particularly of the armed forces, graft, corruption, uh, drug trafficking, in everything, the intelligence apparatus as well as the military has been involved very badly. Do you think it was unwise for the Pakistani elite to have allowed itself to be maneuvered into the position of frontline ally in the Afghan war by the United States? Is it now impossible for Pakistan to extricate itself? I think uh, it was done under, I call it the press gang method. I mean, it was arm twisted and Pervez Musharraf because he was a dictator. And on top of it, uh, uh, hairbrained, uh, very rash in his attitude. So he went ahead. So I think Pervez Musharraf uh, was inside. He had a weak core, and uh, he succumbed to the to, to the demands of the Americans at that time. But Americans to have made such a demand was also bad. Look now, Pakistan is in trouble. The supply lines of the NATO pass through Pakistan. They land at Karachi. And then it is almost every week about six to 8,000 uh, containers and uh, supply trucks, uh, oil supply, for instance. 1.1 million gallons is, is required for every day uh, of this. This is how much the NATO forces are consuming there. So it has to pass through Pakistan. And as a military man, I can tell you, if you have no control over the supply lines, the war is already lost to you. So they are now destabilizing Pakistan. I have no doubt about it that the Blackwaters and the Z Worldwide and the Dancorp and the security contractors and the special operation forces, they are all active inside Pakistan. What are they trying to do? Destabilize Pakistan. So you are trying to cut the very branch on which you are precariously perched yourself. 
So what what is this kind of a military strategy and why the military generals in uh, of the generals of Pentagon why don't they speak up? I think they need to be court-martialed, many of them, because of the lies that they have been and because of the professional incompetence they have shown. I'm speaking with former head of Pakistani Inter-Services Intelligence, General Hamid Ghul. Today's show, the new turning point in the Middle East, Central and South Asia. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Why is the U.S. allowing, encouraging the destabilization of Pakistan? I don't get it. Well, that's what I see. They're playing plumb into the hands of Israel and, and India because I think it's really cutting your own throat. There must be some rationale to it. Yes. Well, it's really unscrutable. It's, it's unbelievable. Why should they be doing that? It's not in their interest because their line of supply runs through Pakistan, and then Pakistan is an extremely important country. If it is lost to you, let's say, in a revolution, then Pakistan's constitution is the only country whose constitution says that there should be sovereignty of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That means really an Islamic democracy can be created in Pakistan. If you are opposed to an Islamic democracy, Islamic republic, then you should not be doing this. Because you must not create a situation where the empowerment of people will come to such a level that they will be able to force down the the uh, provisions of their own constitution and have a new system of governance in Pakistan. And that will combine with the system of governance which the Taliban are thinking of, I mean, not as harsh as it was in the past, but democratically uh, Islamization of the two countries. And uh, whatever impact that creates, that one has to assess for the future. But why are they doing this? That's very interesting. And the worst situation would be that Pakistan plunges into a civil war instead of a revolution, because civil wars have no end at all, and they have no objectives, they have no leadership, and then it doesn't serve your purpose. It's China and a rising power just at the back of Pakistan, and uh, and India also, whom you are supporting. And let's say if there is civil war, a revolution. Let's not imagine even for a moment that India will remain unaffected. There's a whole lot of history of 5,000 years behind it, which suggests that whenever in the Northwest some development takes place, then it has a very profound, very deep impact on the entire South Asian region. And so India, it will ignite an inferno, which nobody will be able to quench in a quick, uh, quick time. So it is really not understandable, except that India wants that before America goes out of the region, and Israel wants the same, Pakistan should be defanged. That means its military and its people must be up against each other, number one. And number two, its nuclear capability must be taken away. And they are unable to create a, a global situation where would, they would say that you have to go for Pakistan's nuclear capability uh, unless Pakistan appears like slipping out of hand. So the only explanation that I can think of is that uh, they have their uh, their prize in, uh, which they are hunting for, that is the nuclear program of Pakistan, and that Pakistan army must confront it, its own people so that it reduces the pressure on India, and particularly in Kashmir. 
Is uh, is a Pakistani ground attack on North Waziristan now not in the cards? And if not, why do you think not? Well, I don't think so. First of all, Pakistan military is uh, so heavily committed uh, in other parts of, of the, the tribal region, what is known as the federally administered tribal area, FATA uh, is, is the abbreviation for it. And in FATA area, there are no less than 150,000 troops now committed, more than the entire uh, NATO and American troops in Afghanistan. And they have not been able to really put down the uprising there. So this is one issue. The other issue is that if you were to draw down from the eastern borders to pull out more troops, then the problem with India has still not gone away. Kashmir is on the boil. And uh, any time there could be a situation, because we've seen in the past that suddenly something erupts and Pakistan army has to deploy. And lately India has been breathing fire and brimstone about Pakistan, militarily speaking. So in this situation, it is not possible for Pakistan to go into North Waziristan. Besides, let's say that you go in for North Waziristan and you destroy the Haqqani. Basically, the idea is to destroy the Haqqani group. Is Haqqani group only present in North Waziristan? That's the big question. Or more of it is present on the other side in Khost and Paktia region, for instance, which are adjoining the North Waziristan area. There is a huge presence of Haqqani group. In fact, the Americans have given up their outposts in that area. They are not present there anymore. They pulled back from there. So Haqqani is actually controlling the situation there. In such a situation for Pakistan to go in, you will be annoying the future government of Afghanistan. You would unnecessarily make them your enemies. Right now, although they are very angry with Pakistan's conduct as a frontline state uh, against them, but uh, I think things are manageable. We can mend the fences in the future. But if this operation is launched, it will have to be carried out then into not only North Pakistan, but you will have to step across the boundary and into host area, that means into parts of Afghan uh, territory. And so Pakistan will be dubbed as an aggressor. And uh, as much uh, an enemy of uh, the Afghan nation as any other who have invaded them in the past. So really for Pakistan, it is not possible because you will simply destroy Pakistan's strategic future because on one side there is hostile India and on the other side, if there is hostile Afghanistan in the future also, then you are sandwiched between the two and small country like Pakistan with with paucity of resources, it is not possible to hold out. Could you give us an update on the drone attacks and special forces operations in the frontier area? Yes, the drone attacks, unfortunately, there have been now almost uh, 250 drone attacks in all in this region. And uh, the figures that they have given are between 20 to 25 al-Qaeda people killed. Fine, some of them may have been. This is what the claim is from America. Nobody else knows who was where and what, this, that, the other. But how many Pakistanis have been killed? To date, 2,420 casualties have taken place on account of drone attacks. And among them, if let's say, if there were 50 uh, who were Al-Qaeda members, rest of them are all ordinary Pakistani civilians, innocent children, women, 
their homes have been destroyed, their cattle have been killed, many other casualties and psychological casualties on top of it, the trauma, it's really disturbed the area to no end. But what has happened to Pakistan in the bargain is that these tribesmen who don't behold only to the Islamic values, they actually are committed to their Pakhtun Wali, which is a traditional uh, code of conduct or code of honor, and they are supposed to take revenge. So young men are then uh, get excited. They, they are then, by the Indian intelligence and by the special operation forces, they are armed, they are motivated to go and uh, carry out suicide attacks inside Pakistan. And Pakistan is suffering uh, on account of that, not only in the human casualties that we are paying in the law and order, but also the economic activities which have slowed down in Pakistan as a result of it. So Pakistan has had to pay a huge price for all this and being the frontline ally of America. So Americans are actually, in, in a way, they are acting as enemies of Pakistan. As much as the American policies are the enemies of the American people themselves, I sometimes wonder, are Americans at war with the Afghan nation, or are they at war with the American people themselves? So this is a very queer situation in which you find yourself, and I think future history will record it as such. Yes, that's a very good question. Now, the recent floods in Pakistan are an important subject, especially the lack of help the victims received, while the military operations against the Pashtuns carry on at great expense. Do you think that the U.S. is working to suppress an uprising by an angry population? I don't think so. Like, uh, it's not possible for the U.S. also, because there is enormous hatred, dislike for America. And uh, how can, can they suppress? I mean, the, the only instrument they can use is the military and the police. Police is uh, very inefficient now in Pakistan. They are absolutely sinecure. I mean, they have, uh, they have not been able to deliver on law and order. And the military is ever so reluctant to come and confront the masses. I don't think military will come. Like in uh, March uh, 2009, when there was a lawyer's movement going on for restoration of uh, judiciary, higher judiciary of Pakistan, then the military had virtually put its hands up uh, that, look, please settle this issue amicably. Otherwise, if you call us out, uh, we may not be able to hold, like I explained to you the whole lot earlier on in my early segment, that the military is the extension of the society. And whatever the feelings are in the society, whatever the predominant sentiment is in the society, that begins to reflect in a moment of crunch within the institution itself. So mindful of those cavities or possibilities of those cavities, I think the military would not go in. So I think the situation will not be in control of anyone, even if the Americans would wish to have the movement suppressed, it would not be possible for them to do so. How organized is the opposition in Pakistan? Not as yet, but uh, yesterday, London-based, uh, one of the political leaders, Al-Taf Hussain, who has been in exile for past, I think, 25 years or so, so he came out with a very long tirade of unleashing a revolution although it is basically an ethnic, linguistic, uh, exclusively linguistic party. But uh, yesterday they organized a, f a gathering 
of all the ethnic communities, and I think that gave him an encouragement and that he went out to, to say a lot of very harsh things and demanding from the army and from the rangers, that is the quasi-military force, that they should support the people's revolution and they should not stand against it. Now, that's the, the typical formula which is being followed now, right now, that these institutions who are supposed to suppress the people, if they join up with the masses, then revolution becomes easy, or at least it is less bloodier and and and, uh, and, and, and quicker to, to culminate. So I think uh, they are getting organized. There was a, yesterday there was a huge rally, uh, on the law of blasphemy, which the government was trying to amend, and that too under the American pressure, unfortunately. Uh, so this rally was quite unprecedented. I think is one of the biggest rallies ever held in Lahore, and I think that is going to have a very deep impact. So the revolution as such is not uh, visible, but I think the... Uh, the markers of that revolution, the signs of that revolution, the early signs have begun to appear. And if it is not controlled by, let's say, the government reforming itself and by government backtracking, right now President Zardari and his uh, complete army of ministers, they are really uh, an aberration to the national psyche and people are not accepting them. The, the stories of corruption and the blocks that they are putting up to the Supreme Court decisions in getting the justice to the people of Pakistan, all these put together are creating a situation of great deal of frustration. And I think it will eventually, over a period of time, it will begin to erupt. I'm speaking with former head of Pakistani Inter-Services Intelligence, General Hamid Ghul. Today's show, the new turning point in the Middle East, Central, and South Asia. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You have asserted that India is, with the United States' help, continuing to undermine Pakistan's position, both in Pakistan and Afghanistan. What evidence do you have of this? Well, it is well documented by, and uh, I think, uh, uh, at least uh, uh, some of the very important uh, MPs, the members of, of the Congress, they have been on record, the American members of the Congress, to have said that India is playing dirty games sitting in Afghanistan. We have Brahmdag Bukti, who is being harbored in, uh, in Afghanistan, and he is responsible for uh, creating insurgency-like situation in Balochistan. And uh, we have that uh, there are 17 Indian intelligence units which have been deployed close to our borders. They have uh, more than necessary number of consulates, which in very odd places in Afghanistan they've been deployed. And uh, it is almost an accepted fact. Everyone knows that Indians are behind all this. And uh, I don't know why Americans are providing them the umbrella to do this. Because Indians will have no place in Afghanistan after Americans pull out, although they want to have a space for themselves, because the rich uh, resources of Central Asia, 
they want to reach out to them and legitimately so i mean there is no harm if if they but not in the fashion at the cost of pakistan and not without settling the kashmir issue i think they have to attend to these issues and obama during his uh, election campaign had mentioned that he would address the kashmir issue but he conveniently forgot about it and pakistan feels very hurt when not only president obama but uh, david cameron angela merkel and sarkozy and everybody just to have an apple piece of pie in the economic uh, uh, boom in india they try to ignore the kashmir issue which is really the at the at the heart at the center of the all the problems of south asian region so uh, they are not addressing these problems and uh, indians are not prepared to even come on to the table to talk they are ruthlessly carrying out atrocities the indian military they have been um, indians have allowed them a carte blanche a free check to do whatever they like in kashmir human rights are being ignored some of the people who have raised their voice in india itself some intellectual like sayed ali gilani a political leader and arunduthi rai a very eminent scholar in her own right she has come out very strongly and you know that the penalty for them is that they are going to be tried already they have said we will uh, serve them notice for treason and indict them for uh, high treason against the constitution of india so if this is the attitude that indians have adopted of intransigent attitude while seeking concession from pakistan and while wanting to create a, a space for themselves in post withdrawal of afghanistan i think uh, this is not going to work this is this is uh, uh, something which is a huge contradiction with regard to kashmir how, how did the standoff between india and pakistan in kashmir unfold well i think we are at the defining moment now the kashmir problem is now let's say in the past they were saying that uh, the kashmiris had picked up arms and they were fighting and so if the militancy and trans border car uh, crossing infiltration doesn't stop then we will not talk to the kashmiris basically the issue is a democratic one we have to find a democratic solution to the kashmir problem that means right of choice right of vote which has been guaranteed to them not only by the international community back in 1949 but also by the indian leadership and the pakistani leadership there are three parties to kashmir the kashmiris are the most important party themselves and they have been artificially and very coercively divided into two parts one is under pakistan's administration the other is under indian occupation and a part of it is with the china also by the way because they have they had occupied in 1962 when they fought the indians in that region then they occupied some parts of kashmir so there are actually four parties to kashmir if even if one were to leave china out according to the un resolution there are three parties and the kashmiris have to still make the choice and they have made it manifestly clear that they are not prepared to live with, within the framework of the indian union and that leaves them with the choice of join pakistan according to the resolution but let's say if they want to exercise a third choice that is uh, going going completely independent and making an independent country uh, of their own well that is their choice it should be given to them because so many people have been killed from 
day one, if you start counting, it's nearly one half of a million people who have been killed or tortured and women have been raped. But if you take the recent movement, it's 125,000 documented properly by the United Nations itself, by independent sources. They have 125,000 Kashmiris have been killed. Now the Kashmir movement has taken up a new turn. The youth of Kashmir have risen up, precisely as in Tunis, as in, in Egypt, as elsewhere, wherever the youth movements have come. So this youth movement is showing lots of energy, lot of uh, potential in itself, and they are demanding the right of the Kashmiris, the fundamental right of Kashmiris, that the Kashmir belongs to us, and we are the ones who are going to decide the destiny of Kashmir in the future. But Indian would not budge. They call themselves democracy, but they don't believe in the sanctity of the right of vote as far as Kashmiris go. Now, this is basically the problem. And Indians have got to come to their senses. We have gone to war three times on Kashmir, India and Pakistan. And if you were to count out the Kargil war, if you take Kargil into account, then there are four wars that we have fought. And both countries are suffering economically. Our poor people are suffering because both countries are uh, obliged to uh, maintain huge military establishment because of Kashmir. If Kashmir goes away, then everything good becomes good even for India. And for corporate America who are so keen to invest in India, that if Kashmir is out of the way, then India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and onward towards Central Asia Everything opens up. And if that doesn't happen, then I can assure you that we all will continue to suffer indefinitely as we have suffered for the past 63, 64 years. What was the sequence of wars, the role of Britain and the United States? It would help if you laid out the background a little bit. Well, actually, when uh, the British left uh, the Indian soil, uh, they agreed on a formula to divide India, and it was to be divided on the basis of Muslim-majority areas to join with Pakistan and the Hindu-majority areas to go over to India. Now, as far as Kashmir is concerned, it is predominantly Muslim. Almost at that time, it was 80 to 85 percent Muslim-majority. But uh, the Redcliffe Award, there was a gentleman, uh, they say he was a the British, uh, I think, jurist, and he was made the in charge of the commission to carve out the boundary, lay out the boundary line between the two countries. He conveniently gave certain Muslim majority areas which had voted for Pakistan over to India in the dispensation of the boundary line, with the result that Indians were given land route access to Kashmir. And that created the problem. The British are, like always, they play very dirty. And this is in the nature of the superpowers when they want to leave an area, they leave it in a mess, as precisely as America is going to leave Pakistan and this region into a mess, if they don't correct themselves. I, I hope they do. But if they don't correct themselves, it will be a similar situation. So they left this, and the Indians marched right into Kashmir because Pakistan had very few armed forces. The tribesmen, these very North Waziristan and South Waziristan people, they came to Pakistan army, few units that were there at that time. They came to uh, rescue the Kashmir situation, but they were able to achieve only partial success. Indian armed forces, on the other hand, were much better organized, and they were concentrated, and they had the right type of command. 
when the founding father Kaidiyazam Muhammad Ali Jinnah asked his own army chief, who was a Britisher, his name was General Douglas Gracie, he was asked to march into Kashmir with whatever forces he had. He refused to do so because there was a joint command at that time under Field Marshal Auchinleck. Joint uh, command, the country had been divided, but the army had not been divided at that time. What an irony. And that resulted into this mess, and Indians came in, and they occupied the major portion of Kashmir. That's the story, and then, of course, it goes on. It's a, it's a very uh, sad, tragic story that um, every time one reflects on it, one feels a pang in, in one's heart about it. General Gould, is there anything that you would like to add about uh, what is going on in uh, Pakistan, India, Kashmir, and uh, also the Middle East? A lot of turmoil, a lot of mess which is going to be created. I think the the rulers will fall like nine pins, one after the other, they will fall. Now, the timing I cannot determine, but I think it has really set the ball rolling. And where it will end up, one doesn't know. As far as India itself is concerned, it is now facing this situation because this revolutionary fervor traveling from the northwest uh, is marching towards India. And if Pakistan goes into its grasp, then I think I already explained to you that India would will have to suffer a, a great deal. All their economic growth and development will go by the board. But the, there is another thing which is happening in India. From the East, there is another kind of a revolution which is coming. Almost one-fifth of India has gone into the hands of the rebel. It's called the Red Corridor. It runs from the foothill of the Malayas, from Uttarakhand down to Odisha. It's a huge swath of territory which is in the control of the rebels now. For instance, out of uh, 608 districts of India, district is a sort of administrative unit which is managed as a district. It is one cohesive body, management body. So there are 608 districts. Out of that, nearly 200 districts are in the control of the rebels. The government, the state government or the central government has no control over them. I'm quoting the figures from the Indian paper, from their own magazines and journals. And out of 14,000 police stations, 2,000 police stations in India are totally in the control of it. They manage, they run those police stations, they control the police force there. So this moist Naxalite movement is really taking hold of. In the north, further northeast, where China has already said it's called Arunachal Pradesh. Chinese have a claim on that. And they have said we will not give anybody traveling from Arunachal Pradesh, if he's traveling to China, they will be given visa on a stapled sheet, not on the Indian passport, same as for Kashmir. So I think China's attitude towards India is also becoming quite stiff. And in this situation, Nepal has already suffered uh, an upheaval. And uh, this from the east, the movement from the east is eventually going to. So all the development of India looks so ethereal, it's so superficial, and their growth rate and this, that, the other, much of it is being projected quite unnecessarily by the West without going into the depth of it. But I am quoting you the figures which the Indian magazine, their, their, their own writers have uh, written about. Do you have anything to add about Pakistan? We hope for the best, but I think Pakistan should be left to its own. 
and please do not forcibly change our culture because the american policy makers and the european ones they want to state jack jacket pakistan into their own kind of uh, mold that they want to set a mold for pakistan nations such nation is as large as pakistan nation is they cannot be molded so easily so please do not do that and do not try to snatch away our nuclear capability because that's the pride of pakistan it is not meant for anything else but to give hope and pride and a sense of security to a hapless nation which has suffered so much it has been truncated in the past by the indian military might and by their machinations east pakistan was cut away and the memory is still fresh it is not gone away so we feel insecure and without the nuclear capability anything could happen but i don't think we will let go of the nuclear capability this is a pipe dream and it must not be pursued general hamid ghul thank you very much thank you bonnie I've been speaking with General Hamid Ghul. Today's show has been the new turning point in the Middle East, Central and South Asia. General Ghul had a brilliant 36-year military career in the Pakistan Army and is now retired. The highest attainment of his long and distinguished career was his command of Inter-Services Intelligence, ISI, from 1987 to 1989 during the fateful period of Afghan jihad against the Soviet occupation of that country. He attended Staff College Camberley in the United Kingdom. As a young officer, he attended the US Pacific Army's Intelligence School in Okinawa, Japan. General Ghul faced down riot police when they tried to arrest him at a rally outside the Supreme Court in Islamabad, protesting against the attempts to dismiss the Chief Justice. He has written hundreds of columns, mostly for Urdu Press of Pakistan, but also for the English readership within Pakistan and abroad. Visit his website at www.generalhamidghul.com. That's general h a m i d g u l . c o m. There is some information there in English. Today's show was co-produced by Todd Fletcher. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To make comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Say it's time that we live in G and our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then 